This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I am the Senior Administrator here at the Hendricks Center. Today, we're going to be talking about providence, which is how God is active in our world and how... Um, the that theological concept impacts how we understand God himself and how we respond um, to those actions. So we're joined today, very excited about this, we're joined by Mark Elliott, who is the professor of divinity and biblical criticism at the University of Glasgow. So we are blessed by technology to be able to meet together. It's about nine o'clock or 10 o'clock my time, but four or five o'clock his time, four <laughs> his time. So once again, a, a blessing that we have at this kind of technology. So Mark, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, for, thank you for the invite. That's very kind. Absolutely. So just to introduce you a, a bit to our listeners, would you mind just telling us about yourself and how you ended up in biblical studies and scholarship in particular? Well, I like, like so many academics teaching theology, and I don't want to say all of them or most of them, but, but, but probably many of us. We are failed pastors. We, we, well, I, myself. I felt calling what I thought was a calling to ministry in my probably early 20s while I was a law student. And I thought, well, that's, that's me got that sorted because I didn't really want to go off to be a lawyer just at that point. And so I thought, great, you know, this is God is calling me to something really useful, um, fantastic. What a, what, a, what, a, what a vocation. It didn't quite work out that way. And I ended up in my mid-20s, late-20s, doing a PhD to kind of buy myself some time, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I did the, 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 the kind of what equivalent of an, M, of an MDiv, um, mm -hmm. then I, but I didn't go into, into pastoral ministry. I, I did a PhD instead and came out the other side of that. I was still open to pastoral ministry, but I think um, maybe the, that boat had sailed by that point. And um, ever since I've been in academic work, um, very much hopefully seeing that from time to time anyway as you know useful in some ways for the church i like to think that on a good day anyway <laughs> i've had many of my professors say that <laughs> sometimes you you question it but <laughs> it it is long-term helpful for the church so how did you become interested in the topic of providence specifically Right. Well, maybe what I just said in some sense, you know, is autobiographical, although I didn't consciously think that, but I think sometimes unconsciously we're pushed towards things. <laughs> we find an interest in something and then we only realize later that well, maybe that was because I had an underlying interest in that topic. Mm. Um, I think it was to do with uh, reading in the tradition a little bit. I read a, a work by John Chrysostom on Divine Providence, which he wrote in 405, 406, when he'd just lost his job. He'd lost his, he'd been driven out of Constantinople. He'd fallen out with the wrong people. Um, he'd been too critical, uh, perhaps, in his preaching at times. 
and uh, he had to, you know, he was into, he was put into exile, and and he he had to, and he wrote this book while he was in exile, and then he was called back. But by the time he was summoned back, he was getting on a bit, and and he died in the mountains, we believe, which is a bit of a sad end. But before that, he, there's a book which starts off complaining about his lot and saying. You know, it's all terrible. This has happened to me, and I'm trying to make sense of it. And I think Chrysostom's work was something that, you know, was was a kind of a, a, inspiration. Is possibly too strong, but it certainly stirred my interest in in that theme. Hmm, fascinating. And so, are there any other works that really stood out to you as well on providence, like especially from the early church and? Yeah, I mean, I think that was probably the main one in the early early church, and and, and there weren't so many people writing on that topic or even mm. on the topic of creation. It isn't really until you get into the the Middle Ages that maybe people start to take the topic of creation more more seriously, and therefore providence. So Thomas Aquinas would be an example of somebody who, because he's interested in the goodness of God's creation, over against those who would say that the that the world is a terrible place and that God. If he had the chance to do it again, would do it very differently. Thomas says that's not the case. You know, the creation is is good, and it's so good that God wanted to perfect it, and and we can have a share in that by sharing His Son, who 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 came down to earth for us. So, in some sense, for for Thomas, that sending of of Christ is is providential, because for Thomas, it isn't just about the salvation of of. So shall we say the elect? Although Thomas does mm-hmm. have account of that, but but it has wider implications for 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 the world, um, not least through the through the establishing of the church and what that means for world history and the progress of of creation. If you think of Ephesians, I think the idea of the of is it Christ or the church who is filling the universe? And sometimes it's hard to know. But you know, it, it is Christ who's who's the fullness. But within that, the church is a special place. So Thomas, I think, has this kind of, he uses the, the, his ecclesiology to kind of mediate between his soteriology and his cosmology. And I found that, that, that interesting as well with the, with the help of some, some good, uh, good scholarship on, the, on that mm-hmm. subject. So I think that would be a kind of another stopping point. Obviously, for me, being Scottish and being Protestant, Calvin is someone one would never want to to go too far from. So that was important mm. for me as well in my in my tradition. Fascinating. Okay, so we have been already talking about providence, and for those people who are listening, we should probably just give a quick, eh, semi quick definition of providence. Um, so providence specifically is a theological concept. It's not a word we particularly find in the Bible, though it is definitely an ancient literature. So um, would you like to speak to that a little bit? What is this concept of providence that we talk about? Where do we get it? Especially for people who might be a little bit reticent not to um, hold on to something that the word itself isn't in the Bible. Yeah, that's that's right. That's a very good point, and I'm glad you mentioned that. That the the word isn't there. There's not a, really a, a Hebrew word for providence, but there are a number of Hebrew terms and expressions which give you very much that sense of that, particularly when applied to God, that God is doing something of that sort. So, when Abraham says to Isaac uh, as they're going up the mountain, with and Abraham thinks he's going to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, you know, in response to the Lord's command, and Isaac doesn't really know, but he senses something is going on. He says, "You know, where is 
the the ram to be offered up mm-hmm. for going up to do the sacrifice. And Abraham, rather in some ways, rather sardonically says, um, "The Lord will provide." And and that uh, the yira um, word is 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 something which has to do with making provision or making um, making good and, and and making available. Um, now this isn't appear again and again, but you but you have that, and you also have a term like pachad, which is which is in some sense to do with God coming to visit, or it could be like a king inspecting his army or his troops. Mm-hmm. Um, or checking up a little bit, or seeing to something. It's the same sort of idea of, in the Greek translation where you get the idea of the bishop, the, the, the overseer, that God is coming in to, to have a look and to check up on things. So I think in the Hebrew Bible, and, and also maybe thirdly to say, there's an in, a strong interest in kind of everyday life, not just in the things of salvation history, not just in the history of Israel, although of course that is so central, that is perhaps the, the central theme um, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. But there is a there is also a strong kind of fugue which has to do with, with human life, which you get in the book of Ruth, for example, um, where in the book of Ruth it just says, and she happened to be in the field that day, you know, that kind of thing. This, uh, and, th- and this sort of mikra um, verb is well, what's, what's going on there. Well, it's a sort of opportunity kind of thing. It's not just chance. And so, th- so there is an awareness, particularly if you look um, in, with, with kind of eyes to read the, the, the Bible's literature there, there is a strong sense that behind the scenes there is a, there's a divine intelligence and a personal intelligence um, shaping things. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, that's fairly strong in the Hebrew Bible. So to boil it down to perhaps sort of two, a kind of twofold definition, mm-hmm. it's God making things available or providing in that sense, being like a, like, a, like a parent would provide, given that he has a creation to look after, so it's presupposed his creation is God's, and secondly, that in doing that, he doesn't just do it in a kind of um, sort of automatic responsive way where, oh, there's a need, I must try to do something about that. But because he is God, he foresees, he oversees, he sees from a distance, he sees the way that things are unraveling, the thing, and he responds to, to, to challenges, but he also initiates. So there's a planning side to providence. It's foreseeing as well as providing. So you you mentioned a little bit as you were speaking about Thomas Aquinas, hmm. and and it came up um, a little bit in what you were just saying. Now, it seems to me that there is so uh, Richard Mao uh, has called in, in some older works, and I think he has an article fairly recently about um, the need for a theology of commonness and hmm. um, the idea that there are there are things that all of us hold in common and there is um, there is theology in the midst of the world that everyone experiences, whether or not they're even aware of it. And, and he would love <laughs> some scholars to really dig in and, and discuss that. To me, it seems like Providence might be a part of that conversation. Do you have any thoughts about the relationship between the two? Yes, I mean, I think sometimes people say that common grace and Providence are one and the same thing. Um. And I wouldn't want to, you know, contradict that or again say that, mm-hmm. but I, I suppose providence sounds a little bit more dynamic. It sounds that God is is the one who is is making the running a bit. Common grace sometimes seems a little bit to me like, you know, God has thrown some things in there, um, some things that we will then, if we wish if we wish to use them, we can we can use them and therefore um 
that is God kind of providing over and above what he's provided in creation, giving us something of, of grace to, you know, to everyone. And I think those things are there, and it's useful to reflect on that, but I would still see those as kind of a slightly smaller subset of the set, which is providence. So, for example, when Philip Melanchthon, the, uh, the reformer, says that we have, what, what the, how do we know that God provides for us or God cares for his creation at all um, and or cares for the human race? And he says, this is quite apart from getting onto the questions of the church, but just how, does, how do we know God cares for the human race? Well, he gives us family as an institution. He gives us good government, or maybe not good government, but some kind of government anyway. As an institution. <laughs> an um, attempt. <laughs> exactly. Because we are the ones that are, are doing it, so we're, we're, it's mm. not, going to be, not going to be as good as it could be. Um, but these, but the actual, these actually institutions are, are, are seen positively as part of mm. God's providing. You could call that common grace. Um, I think that to look at it slightly more dynamically, God is still in those things and still cares about them enough to, you know, so that if um, a magistrate or, or a politician or whoever has got decisions to make gets down on his or her knees and prays, um, that can make all the difference to how that institution operates or if particularly people come together and seek the face of God, um, that can make a complete difference. But are, even if they don't, <laughs> Even if they don't avail themselves of the common grace or don't kind of turn that common grace into something more of a special grace, God can still work and God still does work. And I think that's, a, that's I think what providence provides. Common grace sometimes seems a little bit to me like saying, well, from keeping things from going too bad for the time being, um, God gives us this thing to make common grace to make our existence slightly more bearable. Um, I think it's a bit more purpose and a bit more of God in it than that. Mm -hmm. Almost like regardless of whether or not, it, particularly in, in relation to humans, but even I mean, creation is a bit different, but, it, but with humans, whether or not they choose to follow him and recognize him as Lord, um, he still loves them and he still provides for them. It's, it's a measure of him providing for his enemies and caring for him, loving his enemies. Yeah, his, his enemies, those who are indifferent, who may also be his enemies, uh, depending on on, des on one's definition, um, just for those whom he has he has made, he he cares for um, whatever else he feels about it. Um, he 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 does have that sense of of quasi parental care, and I think this is the distinction to be drawn. And maybe it's something you want to talk about later, but one could just mention at this point the distinction between a providence which happens regardless of people being conscious of it, and a special providence, which mm -hmm. tends to happen when people are aware, not of when providence happens, but that there is a thing happening in their lives somehow, and they can sense it, even if they couldn't quite say what exactly it was. And maybe with hindsight, you can say more, well, God did this, and mm -hmm. it's not always obvious at the time. But that's where guidance comes in, for special providence, but but before we get to that, I think you know just to speak about general providence, that isn't just about kind of the sun going uh, down and coming up the next morning, although that's a really important part of general providence, but a general providence that that leads into uh, into history as well, because mm -hmm. you know you don't have creation without history, you don't have history without creation. Mm -hmm. So providence, just to summarize um, this part of our conversation for those who are listening. Providence um, is essentially God's work now to provide for his creation and um, de 
depending on how deterministic you want to get, either foreseeing um, or moving things toward his divine will. And um, so that's kind of what we're talking about when we talk about providence. And we see that that concept, again, not the specific word, though it is an old word that appears in ancient literature, um, we, we see that concept in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And like you were even talking about with Chrysostom and Aquinas, we see it in the Christian tradition. So speaking of the Christian tradition, there have traditionally been kind of spheres or dimensions of providence that, that, that providence has gotten split into, though it's definitely all kind of one act. Yeah. Um, those those dimensions are uh, his sustenance, his concurrence, which is a big word we'll need to unpack, and as well as his government. So what are your thoughts? Um, first off, would you just mind introducing those concepts to our listeners and, um, and then give us just your thoughts on that and how you see them playing out in the theological consideration of providence? Okay, um, to take his sustaining uh, providence, first of all. Um, it, it certainly seems that when, when God says to, to Noah that I put my my covenant, my ark, the ark in the sky as a, as a sign of a covenant that I will, to paraphrase, you know, preserve and sustain the world um, uh, from, from now on as, as it is, um, at least not to, not, to, not to send a flood again. And that is seen as a kind of, a great kind of covenantal moment for all of humanity before we get the special covenants made with Abraham and, and, and others. So this is, this is something which does tell us that God's, part of God's action is to keep things partly from falling apart, from sort of entropy or from the effects of sin, completely destroying everything, but also doing a little bit more than that, I think, um, by keeping things going in an orderly way and, 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 and preserving that which is good about creation and making sure it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, doesn't lack, not doesn't lack for anything in terms of God keeping it, keeping the show going. And I think one can say that with great thankfulness and, and, and appreciation. But as you say, that's only one of three. Um, you know, the second one in the tradition, and this is a tradition that you do find in the, in the Middle Ages, but it's certainly something which comes into its own in the, um, in the Lutheran as well as in the Reformed ways of looking at providence in the in the early modern period, and, and we, we inherit that now. Concurrence is an interesting one because, uh, to use the Latin concursus, um, it's sometimes a little bit unclear just who is doing the concurring. Concurring is like running together. And who is who's who's going out first and who's who, you know, like, like two jogging partners or two running partners. Um, who's the one that's going out first and who's the one that's following? And sometimes the way it flips, I think, particularly in the Lutheran tradition, not that I've got anything against the Lutheran tradition here, but I think it happens in the Lutheran tradition, a sense in which it's particularly in the early modern period, it's what humans are initiating, and it's God kind of coming alongside and saying, I'll, I'll back you up on this, guys, you know. Um, mm. You do your bit, and I will come alongside you and concur with you. I don't think that's how originally it was in the tradition, but I think that certainly became that way, that concurrence began to have that kind of teamwork kind of sense, rather than God having sovereignty, rather than God taking the initiative. And I think that's one of my slight problems, I think, with the, with the, the term concurrence, because it is quite slippery. And then thirdly, the governance one, 
which sometimes has this idea of, of direction or if God is perhaps on a, sh- on a ship or understood in that kind of term of like a helmsman on a ship who needs to steer the rudder so that if the ship is drifting in one direction, he brings it back in another direction. He stops it going too far that way and can bring things back in, a, in, the, in the course that he wishes. So a corrective, directive kind of aspect to his providence. My, again, I, I slightly worry about that, that that can seem that God is the one who's always playing black in the chess game, you know? Now, it's always sometimes traditionally mm-hmm. that was not appreciated. And, and, and in fact, you know, too often it was just, well, God is doing everything and there's no place for human cooperation oh. or human response. Um, but I think that's something which can, you know, go too far the other way where we think that God's business is a bit like that of a parent whose job it is to just tidy up all the time, um, you know, which obviously is part of a parent's job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe that's more part of the sustaining. I don't know. But, but I think there needs to be something there for God to be the God who takes initiative and the God who, who, who drives things forward with his own agenda. And, go, and, and the kind of governing thing of idea of sort of steering back to where, it, where he wants it to go, it, it's, it's, it's a true facet, but I think it misses something as well. So it seems like those, well, first it should be said that those three are, again, one, a part of one act. So that's why, you know, they, they overlap and that kind of thing. And so to try to separate them out, I think um, there's a, a scholar who argues that you shouldn't separate them out too strongly or you start to get into some yes. some sketchy heterodox territory. Yes, um but it particularly governance that kind of gets you into the question of what is the relationship between providence and history? Mm. Um, you, like you were talking about how, is it, you know, is it part of it that God is kind of guiding and directing? And so what does that mean for how Christians understand history? Um, is it, is providence really only related to salvation history? Is that what we're talking about? Is it related to all history? What are, can you in, just walk us through the relationship between those two? Right. I think it may be wiser to take a fairly minimalist view of what God exactly is doing in history. (laughs) Always dangerous. (laughs) Looking back 500, 1,000 years, we still perhaps don't really know how Mm -hmm. much we can say, well, this was God's doing. Um, There are certain things that we can have a bit more confidence than others. And certainly right now, it's very hard, almost impossible to be be sure. and, and, And we have to be very careful. I think we can say a little bit more with confidence about church history than we can say it about world history. Mm -hmm. But let's remember that church history is part of world history and that if we can be aware that God is guiding his church into certain initiatives, whether those are issues of of mission or holiness of life or community or seeking for, for, for justice or prophetic vision, whatever that is, whatever the contribution, the outward contribution of the church or even inward contribution, um, because, you know, someone like Stan Horowitz would remind us that, you know, a Christian voice is only as strong as the, as the embodied witness that it has as, 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 as communities. Uh, and therefore, so even our inward church history, if that church history is, is, is something where one can sense the, the hand of the Lord, then one can be sure that that is not, having no effect on on world history now is god also doing things kind of 
quite independently of the church, other than just the reacting thing of what we saw in kind of governance, sort of governing, kind of bringing things back into line? Is he actually doing positive things? And of course, one would maybe want to say, well, yes, um, obviously in tandem with the church, but kind of nevertheless outside the church, God is working through the intelligence or the the skill, the skill of, of, of doctors or the skill of scientists, mm-hmm. the skill of whatever, or, or, or even of, of people who, who, who make music or, or write plays, you know, God in some senses can be seen to be working through, through those. And that is part of, of God's history. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Where it becomes a little bit more difficult because that's like the history of culture and the history of science and those kind of fairly, fairly positive things. It's more difficult when one gets into like what a lot of history is, the history of, mm-hmm. of war, ag- aggression, how to deal with famine, uh, or, or how to sort of take advantage of, of, of the weakness of others, perhaps. Um, and I think that that required a little bit more thought <laughs> and uh, perhaps um, tact as well. <laughs> Which perhaps takes us directly into the conversa- a conversation about the, a relationship between providence and free will. Because right. if, you're, if you're getting into essentially the problem of evil, and, um, well, world history, what happens in this world and that God is supposed to be caring for mm-hmm. and su- sustaining and providing for. And then these horrific things happen. You know, we recognize them mm-hmm. because of our confession, because, of, you know, the brokenness and of the world in the midst of its so- sinful and fallen state. Yeah. But what is how do people think about the relationship between providence and free will? And I'm sure that there is a spectrum here. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, God is certainly getting on with things. God, you know, if we look at God of the of the of the Bible. God has certain things that He wants to do, and He goes about doing them. You know, and mm-hmm. um, and there's a, there's a there's a large witness to that in the scriptures. But there's also that sense that that God also leaves a bit of quite a bit of space to human beings to um, respond to how he has set things up in terms of human life, what are our responsibilities, but what also are our opportunities and what are our, our loves and what are our um, what are our desires and aims and all that kind of thing God has allows us to kind of get on with in some ways. And and even if you think very early on in, in the in the Bible with Genesis, you've got the, the story of Joseph and his brothers, which is a kind of you know, a very obvious kind of providential story they are pretty early in the canon, so it would maybe suggest to me that this this providence is a, is a biblical doctrine which we which is foregrounded rather than sort of somewhere obscure, you know, halfway through the Bible. We need to look for it. So it's there, and what it says is that uh, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. Now that's that's one way of looking at it that that, that the brothers of Joseph intended things for evil because human hearts tend that way, and that's what quite often the Bible tells us. At least that's that's at least half of the story. 
But I think also to look at it slightly other terms, um, and one brings in here, given that, that Joseph is associated to a certain extent, although this is in some sense disputed, but one can see it, one can make a case for it, as, as, a, as a wise man, as a wise person, who um, kind of knows how to, how to respond, not so much because he gets prophetic visions, which he does, but also kind of then how he sort of works skillfully with that revelation in a rather kind of human intelligent way, given the natural gifts that he has, not without reference to God, but nevertheless in a kind of, in a sort of wise guy kind of way, in a way that the, the person who wrote Proverbs, say, say it was King Solomon or whoever in Solomon's court wrote the Proverbs, would approve of, and that the, the, the human heart is in some sense invited to plan and to make plans and to, you know, to look for, for, for opportunities in life. Um, but God, of course, will sometimes take over. He will dispose. Um, I think particularly of people who are in the covenant, particularly people who are close to, to, to God and, and to his, his family, um, that God will, 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 will be especially kind of committed to kind of interacting with them. But he does give a lot of freedom in the first place for people just to follow the kind of the natural gifts and the natural desires and natural interests that they have. Does that, I don't know if that helps at all. Absolutely. No, it does. <laughs> Walking through it. So um, for those who, like we were talking about a little bit earlier, who will never come to faith, um, what is the relationship between providence and the unbeliever as a, in relate, not relation, I'm using the word relationship too much, but what is the dynamic between, um, providence and unbelievers and providence and believers? I think you got into it a little bit earlier with the idea of special providence, but let's start by talking about providence with unbelievers and then we can move into special providence. Yeah, that general providence that's there for all believers, I think, as I said, is not just about all the good gifts of the sun and the rain and food on the table coming our way, and I say our, like for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's just about that. Um, it is about God then, um, shall we say, making things available where there is lack. Mm-hmm. Um, you get this a bit in Job 38 to, to 41, where you get this sort of sense of, it's not that, that, in, that, that even in natural creation that the, the wild animals are just able to look after themselves, but there's a sense in which God provides things for them when, in fact, mm-hmm. things are not going very well, you know, when things are, the desert is drying up and the camel is looking for water and things for her young, you know, God makes available. Um, now, I think that's, a, you know, one was more we need to kind of, we want to try to kind of go into too much detail there. But certainly there's a sense that God's provision for, for human beings, you know, even more so, um, is real, and yet without overwhelming human free will. And so there will be times when people, unfortunately, um, suffer at the hands of others, and uh, or, or the way things are set up in a particular society. And those people will, well, well one would hope perhaps if they don't cry out to God, at least the church, the people of God would be able to, to come alongside them and, 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 and be for them and, and, and sort of mediate for them and, and draw them to Christ and to, and to the possibility of, of receiving from God blessings of all sorts, really. So I, I don't think that the, the, the kind of the unredeemed or the unbelieving world is necessarily so far away from, from the purposes of God in, in that way. 
But of course, if you you know walk down the street and ask people, you you, you would very quickly think, well, yes, it is. You know, <laughs> nobody seems terribly interested, let alone kind of for or against. You know, um, it's just it's just. Um, but it's one of these things where we, we need to stop looking. I'm telling this to myself, really. To stop looking at my own kind of somewhat sort of depressive look on kind of the world, and actually use the imagination of faith that that sees the possibilities there that God would want to, you know, by his by his continued love, that that love can does express itself um, in the offer of salvation and relationship, um, and, and 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 for anyone. So, um, so very much God is still interested in the world, even the world isn't interested in him. And that for those of us who have turned to, to, to God, we, um, we have that role, I think, of, you know, as we believe in guidance, as we believe in the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, and God's, God's forgiving grace, to be communities of, of love, I mean, I would say that starts with love for each other within the communities. If you can't actually get that right, then it's going to be hard to to impress anybody else or to to help anybody else. Oh yeah, <laughs> so, but, but that is that something we can, we can believe in. We're not obviously justified by our performance, and that and sometimes allows us. To, we need more and more to rest in God as we as we do this. But I think that is part of His providence to the world is is, is to come through the church. I mean, I think one of the problems that we have, I think, is that. Part of, sometimes when people look at from the outside at the church, they say these believers who go to church on a Sunday morning, if you actually kind of push them, get them into a corner and sort of shine a torch in their face and a light in their face, they will. their belief in providence could actually be a negative thing because they believe that somebody's looking out for them. And mm-hmm. actually when that things don't go so well, you believe in God, um, but, you know, whatever it is doesn't work for you, things to fall apart a bit then you've got someone to blame. And that's someone that you were hoping that was going to help you, isn't helping you, and you resent that. Whereas if you are a kind of an atheist who doesn't think there's anybody else kind of on your side, it's just you, and maybe you're some friends of yours and your loved ones sort of in the world, and you can't always rely on them either, um, then you're more likely to be sort of self-sufficient and sort of self-determining. And you just sort of, you don't, you don't have that same sense of, of disappointment and resentment. And I think the only answer to, well, one answer to that is to say, well, yes, to take that criticism on board and to say that sometimes Christians don't always believe, always behave as, as, as mature people, that we have a sense that God is some kind of, I don't want to use the term sugar daddy, but that, you know, a daddy who provides, you know, candy cane and all sorts of things that we want, mm-hmm. you know, whenever we want them. What can come um, across as naive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and just how to, how to still hold on to the idea that God is loving but that his love is something which will has a sort of sense more of a kind. I don't think it's especially a soul-making thing that God is, his whole purpose is to, well, I, I have sympathy with the idea that God is, God's whole purpose is to make us better people morally. So I want to say yes to that to some extent. But even if that's not the case, even if we don't, we end up the same kind of sinner doing the same kind of terrible things 40 years on from when we first believed, um, God is still faithful. And it's his power and his faithfulness that actually matters rather than our unfaithfulness. Um, but I do think that very fact should invite us and inspire us to, to want to turn to him and then turn outwards to, to our communities. Mm-hmm. So I will give you $20 later 
for um, that segue into my next question, <laughs> which is, um, so in light of everything you were just saying, and, and that that makes us want to turn to him, going a little bit toward the implications of providence, you know, um, those who are listening may or may not be interested in the um, <laughs> depths of the intricacies of theological concept of providence, but they might be very interested in um, okay, so what does this mean for my walk with God, quote unquote, my walk with God and how I treat other people? So what does um, this concept of God's providence, what does this reveal about his character that maybe we don't see in some other kinds of doctors, doctrines? What do we see about him and what does he show himself, show of himself through this? I think it does bring back to our attention the active fatherhood of God, um, which sometimes we forget or play down. So there, there, there is that. And I, I do believe that the fatherhood of God is something which is for all people. It's just that only those who have life in the sun realize that, that God is the father of all of us. Um, I would still, so I think that's an important distinction to make. I think God is the father of, of, of all, all rational creatures human beings um so that it reminds us of that his, his his fatherhood and all that 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 means um but it also i think reminds us that as a father he's a father not so much of well to some extent he's a father of us as kind of small children because there's a sense in which we always remain small children and we need to depend on him as small children mm-hmm. but one could take that too far and think that our Faith is just a question of, just a question of dependence. I mean, it is. It always has to be. There has to be dependence in the Christian walk on God, of course, on God our Father, as Jesus, you know, teaches us to pray, etc. But I think also to think of ourselves to some extent as being adult children, and being those whom God wants to sometimes sort of kick out the nest a little bit, or, or mm-hmm. you know, there are evil things. Out, there are things that are going to hurt you out there. If you don't, I don't know that already. Um, you'll find out soon, just by 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 being alive, and then possibly by trying to do the right thing, or possibly try to be faithful uh, at whatever you're going to. Sometimes that's going to cause you more trouble than you than you'd imagine. And so I think that's somewhere where someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, reminds us that um, you know the sense that 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 the, the believer, it's at certain times, in certain situations, and it's maybe in certain periods should think of herself as someone who um, God has sort of sent away like to to college or something Mm. um, for us to kind of find out ourselves what life is like a little bit on without God always being there all the time for everything that we need or we we think we need. He might be there for everything. But that in and of itself is providential care. Like that's still care, like what is what you're saying. Yeah, that's that's a good parent in the same way as somebody who puts you on an operating table and opens you up with a with a knife is doing mm-hmm. you good. Usually, usually. <laughs> so what what does um, I guess so so how do we respond and how does this impact how we treat and view other people? I guess do we see ourselves as agents of God's providence? do we see ourselves as just reflecting it and, um, you know, just trying to be like him? 
or, you know, just how do we, is this the kind of thing that we try to emulate or this is probably a false dichotomy, but is it something we try to emulate or is it something that we essentially just worship and recognize uh, that in what God does as only God can do? Right. Well, I think for, for Christians, I think we can certainly see that our response can be something we do hand in hand with Jesus. And Jesus is certainly an agent of providence, you know, even in his own life and ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, apart from Jesus, I think, so let's think of someone like Joseph, if we can think of him as apart from Jesus. That's an interesting question. But apart from <laughs> Jesus, we're in, our very best people of God are instruments of God's grace. We're not, mm-hmm. we're channels, we're, we're tools in his hands to, for God to do what he really wants to do because he can see the big picture and we can't. We're like instruments. We're not really agents who are planning things with God. But in Christ, perhaps we are. There's a sense in which we do have a little bit of privileging in that sense, but only because of him that we can have some sense of of agency. But I wouldn't want to say that we're totally agents, but I wouldn't want to say we're totally instruments either. Somewhere in between, there's a kind of a, a kind of a, a tension between us as just just instruments and maybe something a little bit more elevated as agents. Which, which I mean, to to support what you're saying goes back to the nuances that you were trying to add with the, in the sphere of concurrence that we talked about earlier. It's, it's that very tension that you don't want to go too far either way, but there does seem to be something there. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. And I think just to say that it's not that God will not bless what we do. We should be so anxious of saying, Oh, what I'm doing is, you know, is this okay with God? Um, but, but but we should be checking in, <laughs> mm-hmm. and not just sort of saying, "Well, our, our thing, we we should just expect God automatically to bless it." Um, mm-hmm. but looking for His His ideas and His big big plans and purposes and how we fit into those. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that particularly in light of what you're saying, I think um, the big movement that we've the faith and work movement that we've seen. Um, also is a very practical way to see our place in that, especially as believers like you, but even again, everybody that what we do actually matters and very in a very real way might be part of how God is providing for his creation and um, sustaining it and maybe even working alongside it somehow, (laughs) you know? And so even our very own, like, you know, if, if we help make cereal, we are feeding, you know, and we are providing food for people, agriculture, you know, medicine, we're restraining sin, we're healing, you know, all of those things are, are dimensions of this, not, not solely, but they're dimensions oh. of it. And so I think that's another practical way to kind of see the application. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, that, you know, that sounds like, you know, what Luther says about vocation, you know, that, um, that although, we may have been put in, we were born into certain kind of class groupings. You know, we, we, we're just, we're, these, these things have got nothing to do with what, what, what we, would, uh, we would want or, or, or choose. But given that, God gives us a chance to do what we do in a way that you know, has a certain upward mobility about it, but that's not, the, that's not the fun about it. The fun about it is becoming really rather... Um, becoming like part of a second nature to us that we just in almost enjoy or, or find something of life in doing our best for others 
and mm-hmm. and to some extent for herself, and and it all kind of ties together. And I think that kind of idea of vocation as as, as going along with God's providence is is, is very important, um, and it's just helping people to find what that voca- their vocation is, or that's what that's mm-hmm. part of what we we're, we're we're supposed to do for each other. I think. Um, but I think, you know, so much in this time when we've had this um, time of being kind of, or even just the way the modern world is going, kind of more virtual and digital and, and isolated, perhaps, the, so much more important to try to, to counter that and to, to see, you just mentioned, you know, doing things, you know, it's much better for me to go and, have a, and, and run for five miles rather than, you know, sit and read books about it or talk about it or pontificate about it on Twitter or whatever, you know. It, it's much better just to do these things almost like automatically if we can, having these habits having these kind mm-hmm. of second nature it doesn't reflect on it and doesn't say oh yeah that's very oh i've really done that today you know that's a big deal you know just just doing it out of out of love and joy i think hmm. fascinating well our just we got about time for one more question just a, a little bit of a even more of a practical question is if somebody's listening and they think man that's kind of cool i really like what i'm hearing about um, is there a book or two that you would suggest kind of as a fairly basic introduction to Providence? Um, I know you have one. It is, I don't know if it's <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I've got it entry here. Entry level. <laughs> there it is. Um, it's, I mean, it's, that's entry level in the, to the extent that it does go through the Bible quite a lot. You know, I say that's two, true. Two, it ha- gives the biblical foundation in a very the solid way. And if anybody likes or knows their Bible, then they can they can walk with it that way. Mm-hmm. The start of it says, you know, why they're why we don't believe in providence anymore, why we find it hard to. So it kind of tries to deal with that, and the end has a little bit more of a kind of philosophical kind of feel to it. Um, I mean, having said that, I'm not here to plug my own book. And I, if I'm asked this in an academic context, I always immediately say that my friend in, in Edinburgh, David Ferguson, mm-hmm. <laughs> you should all read his book rather than mine. But again, that's that's probably even more academic than mine is. Um, and so I'm, this is a terrible thing. This just shows just who I am as an academic that I can't think right off the top of my head of a popular <laughs> book. Fine. Um, there was somebody that I that I was involved in the his writing a PhD on, which was to look at f- about forty to fifty different Christian books that had been published in twenty years on providence and guidance. I had the kind of guidance aspect, you know, what is God's will for my life and and that kind of thing. And it was a really interesting study that he did. It was a Dutchman who did it, and um, I don't know if that's been published yet. And it wasn't some sense sort of trying to take the best things from all these popular books. Mm-hmm. But what was very interesting was the variety of thinking that many of these Christian leaders and pastors, you know, had on, on these issues, sometimes reflecting on whether they lived in California or lived in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be as simple as that, and they'd have different views on it. So in some sense, it's actually quite a hard thing to teach at a practical level because one's response, um, one, the wisdom that one has for one's life is something which one has for one's own life. Um, and and maybe not so much about. I mean, it's nice to be reminded that that there is that one can make sense of such a doctrine of God's providence. But but nobody is ever saying in a book on providence, this is how it's working for you at the moment. In other mm-hmm. words, you're saying there is such a thing, and we believe there is such a thing, but we don't we can't we can't tell you what it is right now. We can't certainly can't tell you what it is right now for you, your family, and your church. So. I'm a slightly wary, I suppose, a little bit about kind of people attempting to sort of lay down practical rules and tips and laws for, mm-hmm. for on this, these questions. And 
if I if I'm hearing you right, then by nature of what it is is in the concept, it is um, it is inherently abstract, <laughs> at least for us while we are in the midst of it, because you can only see things maybe looking yeah. back. Well, I think there's something to that. I don't know. Abstract sounds bad, but um, certainly mysterious. Hmm. And, and which requires us then to look all the more closely at the things which aren't quite so mysterious in our faith. So the love of God in Jesus, um, who, God, who God is to, towards us when we pray to him, when we worship him, what he's calling us to do in terms of the, of the Christian or the, the ethical life, you know. Um, those kind of things are more, I'm not saying we don't sort of contemplate, because there's a place for contemplation, a place for mystery in the Christian faith too, of course, but... Um, but maybe it's not so much about um, about knowledge there, but about trust. Well, fascinating. Well, our time is up. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. It's been a lovely conversation. Great talking to you. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Good. And and thank you um, who are listening to this podcast. If you t- enjoyed today's uh, discussion, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to join us next time when we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.